Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We had Carl Rollison on a few months back to discuss volume one of his biography of William Faulkner. He's our country's preeminent literary biographer, and he's back with volume two of the Faulkner Chronicle. Welcome, Carl. Thank you, Mark. All right, well, now we are in... Uh, 1935. You got a great cover photo here with Faulkner sitting in a sitting in a in, in an easy chair in the sun with his uh, cool sunglasses on and no shirt. He looks uh, what is he in Hollywood at that point? Yeah, he's in Hollywood at that time. Yeah, <laughs> he, absolutely. He, he he looks like he's settling into Hollywood pretty nicely for all his uh, grumbling about it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I think for years, a lot of people, even some biographers, were misled by his very negative comments about Hollywood. Uh, he had a good circle of friends. He had a, a, a friend uh, who he had met at Yale in 1918 that was practicing law now in California. Sometimes he stayed with him. In December 1935, shortly after my book begins, he meets uh, Mita Carpenter. She's Howard Hawks's. They used to call them script girls. Now that sounds, well, politically incorrect, shall we say, but she was a supervisor. She was quite smart. She was really good on dealing with matters of continuity, and she was assigned to take dictation from Faulkner for a screenplay that turned into a movie called The Road to Glory, and after not very long, really, they became lovers. She was kind of reluctant, but he was very persistent and very persuasive. We'll get to that in a second. So you, you ended last time. And, I mean, Faulkner had an extraordinary period of creativity at a very high level with, let's see, Sound and the Fury is 1929. Yep. Is As I Lay Dying, 31? 1930. 1930, and then Light in August is 32? Yeah, and Sanctuary is 31, so it's a huge period of creativity. One after the other, boom, boom, boom. At least those three, Sanctuary is sort of a different case, but the, those three are three of the monumental novels, American novels, of the 20th century. The fourth one, Absalom, is, he's, he's writing that as you begin volume two. Now, with these renowned novels coming out, where is Faulkner's reputation, his popular reputation and his critical reputation? Where are they now in 1935? In 1935, he's, he's really known as a writer's writer. He has a splash with Sanctuary, which is the only, in a sense, bestseller he had up till then. And the, other, the other novels had very modest sales. 
some very fine reviews, a lot of reviewers who didn't understand the books at all. But he had a really strong following among writers. And in then, in the mid-30s, 1935, uh, most people really, the reading public, aren't that aware of William Faulkner. The name might mean something to them, you know, if they read the newspapers, because he was reviewed in all the newspapers in a way that, in fact, writers aren't today. There was much more literary-centric culture uh, than it is now. So people may have heard of him, but, you know, he, he, was, no, he was not a popular novelist. He was not James M. Cain or Margaret Mitchell or anything approaching that. I mean, Carl, you, you read the first three pages of The Sound and the Fury. If you're walking through a bookstore, you pick it up, you read it, you, you say, oh, what the heck is this about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Unless you have a curiosity about writers and style and in, in modernist literature, uh, and you've read, say, someone like the critic Edmund Wilson, then you might see, oh, this kind of, you know, this is a little joycey, and what is... What's going on here? But yeah, for the average reader, they, they would be mystified, I think. Although this is a time when the novelist is a major cultural voice in, in America. And the other reason why they might pick up The Sound of the Fury and read past the first couple pages is not in 1929, but if they're picking up The Sound of the Fury just a few years later, he's beginning to uh, be published in various magazines, mm -hmm. some literary magazines like Scribner's, but also mass circulation magazines like the Saturday Evening Post. Mm -hmm. uh, by 1934-35, he's beginning to be published by uh, uh, those kinds of magazines. So uh, a reader m might be curious about him. Now, uh, Meta Carpenter, you've got a great picture of her. She's got an in she, she's a, she's a lovely. Person, interesting-looking face, though. There, there seems like there's a lot of depth there, which I imagine would have been required to have drawn a guy like Faulkner so strongly to her. I mean, he was genuinely in love with her, right? He was, and as one of his niece said much, much later when she met uh, Meta Carpenter, she said, boy, my, my, my Uncle Bill had wonderful taste in women. <laughs> Yeah, no, he he was uh, he was certainly interested in women sexually, but there aren't any women I can think of who weren't uh, really really sharp, really intelligent. And what was the situation with his marriage at this time? He had he had married his wife in twenty nine, and the first few years were she was his childhood sweetheart. But she had married someone else. It's a long, complicated story that I tell in Volume 1. So there was some bitterness there. On, on the one hand, she was who he wanted, but he was disenchanted in some ways. She had been his ideal, let me put it that way. Uh, and I think he was constantly looking for that feminine ideal. Also, she came, and this is a term used at the time, she came home in what would be call, uh, called damaged goods. She had been taking drugs. This was in the Far East with her first husband. She was also an alcoholic. And then they had this terrible grief and tragedy when uh, their, their first child, named after his aunt, Alabama, dies after 10 days. Uh, and some couples never get over that. And it took the Faulkners a long, long time to, to come to terms with that. Uh, even with the, the daughter 
with the birth of his daughter Jill a few years later, that helps things certainly. But he he when he came to Hollywood, he was looking for 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 relief in a sense for for a woman who he could uh, respond to with in a sense out without all that history, and yet also a woman who was from Mississippi and who understood him immediately. Oh right, that that is a big factor. They were both southerners in Hollywood, uh, a big big issue. And the other unique thing about Meta Carpenter is she took his dictation. She learned to read his writing. She became, in a way, his amanuensis. Uh, and no one served, served that duty, so to speak. And she does, in her own memoir, talk about him as a writer. You know, she would sometimes say, well, you know, uh, why does this character do that? And he'll say, well, it's what the, he would say, well, that's what the characters say. It's not Faulkner saying it, it's the character saying it. How bad, uh, you, you mentioned his wife, the, the drug addiction, and, and the drinking, his wife as yeah. well. And how, how bad was Faulkner's drinking by now? You know, the, the difference between him and his wife Estelle, you call them both alcoholics, she would drink and just completely go to pieces. She's a bad drunk. You know, they're, they're, right, there's the good drunk and the bad drunk, right? Right. And he, up to a point, he could drink socially, for example. Some say alcoholics can't do that. He seemed to be able to do that for significant periods of time. I guess what I would want to say about his drinking is it's it's really mistaken to think that he he uh, uh, he was drinking while he was writing. No one could write what he wrote and drink. When he drank was either after he finished a novel and just had there was this tremendous feeling of emptiness would overcome him and he didn't know how to cope with it. Or when, and this sometimes happened in Hollywood, when he was just feeling so insecure dealing with these movie moguls and producers and effectively having to punch a clock, so to speak, uh, he found that all really, really trying. And so, so sometimes then he would really resort to drinking. But there were, you know, huge periods of sobriety. And as I say, when he was writing, by and large, if he was drinking, he was drinking socially. I mean, because there are periods, especially later in the 1950s, when he, you know, he passes out, you know, where he's really dead to the world from drinking. But that's certainly not true about what, what was happening when, when he was doing his writing. You mentioned... Hop Faulkner being in Hollywood, he really did mingle with with I mean with Clark Gable. Mm-hmm. Uh, with you mentioned a dinner where he's sitting there with Hedy Lamarr. Yeah, uh, the ma- ma- major figures, but he he never appeared insecure. No. in in their company. I mean, pe- people talk about his his. I don't know. Patrician is the right word, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Composed. No, he looked completely, utterly composed. Uh, and he would go silent, which people interpreted as, you know, being very formidable. Uh, and it, it was partly that. We, he, uh, he had no gift for small talk. And often he'd go to a party, for instance, Howard Hawks would invite him. Well, he was so grateful to Howard Hawks for giving him actually good projects to work on. And Hawks was someone in Hollywood who was who was a director and a producer who actually read Faulkner, actually before he started working with Faulkner. So they had a kind of camaraderie and understanding that lasted for more than 20 years. So that was a very different story. Meta tried to get him to socialize more. They had a very close circle of friends. But in that circle of friends, he could relax. 
and he could be talkative, uh, and he he could talk about art and other things. Uh, he rarely he rarely wanted to talk about his own books, but he was very keen. Uh, about other people's work when in the right setting. I read conflicting stories about him as a script writer. Some 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 stories would say, "Oh yeah, you know, he was a talented writer. He could do things." Others would say, "Yeah, but you know, he'd write this dialogue where he'd have one character doing some stream of consciousness for for three pages." But from your account uh, with with Hawks and with 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 Warner Brothers, it was it Jack Warner, I think uh, that. Uh, Faulkner was darn good at it. When, when, he re- when he tried, he was very good at it. Yeah, he was very, very good at it. It is true that in some instances he did write this, this kind of dialogue that you couldn't put on the screen. Uh, he wrote some pages for uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart in To Have and Have Not, and, and this was on the set. Uh, and uh, Bogart looked at that, and he, he turned to Faulkner and he said, Bill, you expect me to say all that? <laughs> so uh, Faulkner could do that, but he had uh, a tremendous sense of structure, uh, not just of novels, but of cinema. And producers like Jerry Wald, for example, would call him up and he would say, you know, I have this scene, I have this problem, I don't know how to fix this, I don't know what to do. And Faulkner would invariably provide the answer. Uh, and I, I show several instances of this in the second volume of my biography, where he writes a letter to his son-in-law, for example. Faulkner writes a letter, and he, he says, Hawks just uh, released this film called Air Force. Faulkner has no... If you see the film, you won't see any writing credit to William Faulkner. Hawks called him up. It was actually for another studio. Faulkner you know, was under contract to, to Warner Brothers, but this is for, was for another studio. And Hawks said, Bill, could you look at this scene? It's, it has to do with the death of a pilot, because it's just not working for me. And Faulkner just wrote a beautiful scene. And Faulkner knew it, because he wrote to his son-in-law, and he said, you know, if you see Air Force, uh, and he, he named the scene, he said, look at it. He said, I wrote that. And he was obviously very proud of it. Hmm. Now, one thing I noticed is that it looks like Faulkner never really crossed paths with F. Scott Fitzgerald, who, 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 doesn't, who doesn't really show up in the book, but who was in Hollywood at that time. They never, they never mingled. I mean, he did mingle with Nathaniel West, the novelist. You oh, talk yeah, about one yeah. trip that they, that they took, but no Fitzgerald? Not at all. I, I, it's a curious thing about Faulkner. Not only did, doesn't he seem to have even met Fitzgerald in Hollywood, um, when you look at all the comments Faulkner's ever made about writers, I only found one instance where he was asked about Fitzgerald when he was on a tour of Japan in 1955, and another letter in which Faulkner wanted to adapt a Fitzgerald short story. But whenever Faulkner was asked to rank writers, he would mention Hemingway, he would mention Dos Passos, occasionally even Erskine Caldwell. He would never mention Fitzgerald, and it's a it's a real puzzle as to why that would be, because especially with the great Gatsby, there are some connections with Faulkner. But Faulkner, for whatever reason, never never acknowledged Fitzgerald, really. Now, d- during the, early, the first years, the first sections of your book, Faulkner is doing something remarkable uh, to, to me. He's he's in the middle of the script writing, writing things like Air Force and, and working working with Howard Hawks. Then he's then he's back in his rooms and he's composing something from a completely other world with Absalom. Absalom. How is he able how is he able to shift worlds so so smoothly, apparently? 
He did the same thing that I used to do when I was assistant dean of the graduate school at Wayne State University. He'd get up w- way early in the morning. You know, he'd get up four or five o'clock and he'd work for two hours on Absalom, Absalom. And then he would he would either go to the studio or turn to one of the studio scripts that he was working on. And he could he could compartmentalize in that sense and, and go from, from one object to the other. Uh, I feel I sort of have a, a, a feel for that because at certain periods of my life, I've had to do exactly that. It's ambition. Uh, it's it's the desire to excel in a medium that you think you know, and even if you have these other obligations, uh, nothing's going to stop you. And you know, it, it's kind of his own universe, right? That Yaknapatawpha County that he he lived in this other world. Yeah, I think that that's a good way to put it. I think that it didn't matter what else happened. I think the rest of the day in Hollywood, if he could get that belt of writing in one hour, two hours, the rest of the day, uh, no no matter how upsetting it might be or how trying it would be or how tiring it would be, he would know that he got, you know, a certain amount of pages work done on that novel. Uh, you, you have a long section with your with your interpretation of Absalom, Absalom, in which Faulkner goes back to Quentin Compson again and Quentin's father. Uh, from the sound and the fury, was that what was was there was there a biographical angle? There was, in the sense that uh, Faulkner was not suicidal. Many of the details of, of Quentin's life uh, and the Compton family d- doesn't fit the Faulkner family, except in so far as the family was in decline, so to speak. That is, Faulkner's father had not achieved very much. And you had to go all the way back to the great-grandfather, the old colonel who had been in the Civil War and who had founded a railroad. And it was also a writer. You know, nobody in the family came even close to that. So there's a very rough parallel with Quentin Compson and Faulkner. But the, the other really important thing about Absalom Absalom is where it's set. Although a lot of it takes, some of it takes place during the Civil War, much of it is, takes place in the South. A good part of the last part of the novel takes place in the North, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in a Harvard dormitory room. And this is drawing on Faulkner's own experience, because when he was not even into his 20s, he took this train trip up to New Haven with his friend Phil Stone, who was studying law at Yale. And this whole world of the North opened up to Faulkner. But the first thing that Faulkner noticed, not ever having been out of Mississippi, is that people thought he talked funny. <laughs> and they would have him talk just to listen to him. You know, and you can almost, when you, when you know about Faulkner's own life, you can imagine people saying some of the same things to him that the Canadian Shreve McCannon says to Quentin in Absalom, Absalom. So... All of Faulkner's experience goes into Absalom, Absalom, not just his experience in the northern United States, but Faulkner trained as an airman in Toronto, Canada. You know, so it's no accident that he makes this important character in, the, in, the, in Absalom, Absalom, a Canadian Shreve McCannon. Faulkner has a thing about flying, doesn't he? Yes, yeah, yeah. He, he, uh, he desperately wanted to be a World War I ace. Like a lot of kids of his generation, he was born in 1897. You know, he read the newspapers about these, you know, pilots uh, in the First World War were like the cavalry of the air. 
you know, you couldn't you couldn't be a cavalry officer the way you could in Civil War, but my God, you could be a dashing airman, you know, the kind that Gary Cooper plays in Wings, for example. Mm-hmm. And Faulkner wanted to do that, and he got to flight school in Toronto, and then something terrible happened. They ended the war on him. <laughs> right. <laughs> He wanted to be a war hero, but there was no war. But that didn't stop him. He came back to Mississippi, dressed up, you know, in an airman suit with a cane, claiming to have war injuries, and for a good uh, fifteen years, dined out on stories about his World War One exploits. <laughs> well, he he. So Absalom Absalom comes out uh, the same kind of reaction that he got for the earlier for the early books you you say at one point you you have a phrase the bad boy of american fiction is it just as puzzling and in some cases off-putting for some major critics real tastemaker influencers scorn him uh and and uh, this still occasionally happens say in interviews they think that he's intentionally perverse you know, that he, he can't write a decent English sentence. Well, anyone who's actually read Faulkner, particularly his short stories, but also some of the novels, knows he has a grasp of grammar. He knows what an English sentence is and that there's a reason uh, why he writes. You know, he said at one point to the critic Malcolm Cowley in a letter, you know, I'm trying to put everything I know, all the world, all of time into one sentence. That's a very ambitious, obviously, thing to do. And it's part of the reason why some sentences take up a page or more. After Absalom, Absalom, and maybe you answered this question implicitly when you talked about the feeling of a, of a deteriorating older gent, Southern Gentry family, but we have this remarkable turn that proceeds for quite a while to the Snopes family. What is, what is going on there with turning down, going way down the social ladder and focusing so much on the Snopes? Well, the world is changing, and it's changing everywhere, even in the South. And uh, it's what his friend Phil Stone called the rise of the redneck. These They come out of the dirt farmers, they, they come out of the countryside, they go into country stores. Faulkner's main character is Flem Snopes, whose father, Ab Snopes, brings him on to uh, the, the Varner uh, store uh, in the hamlet, and Flem proceeds with a sort of down-home canniness uh, to become the indispensable clerk to begin with, part owner of the store, and he ends up at the end of the Snopes trilogy in the 1950s, the president of a bank. This, in part, is based on on the history of what happened in the South, and particularly in, in Faulkner's own town. His grandfather had been the president of a bank and was pushed out by a fellow named Joe Banks, who was a Snopes-like character. So Faulkner was drawing on some family lore and, uh, and the... Um, uh, the sociological dynamics of what was happening at the time. Uh, but he's also creating full characters. He's also partly in the tradition of Southwest humor, going back to, for literary scholars, characters like Sut Lovengood, 19th and early 20th century characters. Faulkner is, you know, steeped in that kind of frontier humor. And he, he considers, he often said in letters that, uh, Mississippi was a frontier society, a very dangerous, violent society, and 
I think if Faulkner were alive today, looking at what's happening happening in the South, he would understand it. He would realize that the the roots of, of a lot of what's happening go way back, go back to the 1830s, which is where his fiction uh, begins in his Yakna Patafa saga, saga, particularly in the short stories. Yeah, much of which gets solidified with this volume, The Portable Faulkner, edited by Malcolm Cowley. As I said, why was that such a big deal? Why, why did that have such a huge impact on Faulkner's reputation? I think the reason is in part had to do with Mark, Malcolm Cowley, who had a position like Edmund Wilson in the culture. There's nobody like that today. I mean, we could name some public intellectuals and critics we would know, but readers of newspapers wouldn't know but many readers of, of newspapers and magazines would know the name Malcolm Colley, partly, too, because he, he, had, he wrote about the lost generation. That was a very popular book among the general public. And then he did a portable Ernest Hemingway just before the portable Faulkner, and that was a wild success. And he had, he had some convincing to do because a lot of Faulkner was out of print. But he said, look at this guy's output. You know, I can put something together here, an anthology that's, you know, Historically based, we can go through Faulkner's fiction and we can go from the 1830s to the present using his fiction. And people will suddenly realize what a, what a treasure we have here. The funny thing is, the same thing happened to Faulkner because Colley kept trying to get him to write a kind of a historical overview, an introduction. Faulkner didn't want to do it. And then they decided to include a section of The Sound of the Fury and Faulkner realized that had to be historically contextualized. So he wrote something which is generally referred to now as the Compson Appendix. Well, the Compson Appendix goes back to the Battle of Culloden in 1745 in Scotland, because those are the Compson ancestors. That's where the first Jason Compson comes from. And and he pursues Caddy yeah. through World War II, her ending up w- with a Nazi, yeah, a Nazi uh, a lieutenant or captain. He's the mistress, yes, of a Nazi officer. And again, for the readers of The Sound of the Fury, this comes as quite a shock. But one of the things that I try to say in the second volume is Faulkner is the great writer of displacement. You know, his, he, he, he's writing about not just about Caddy, but about the characters in Absalom Absalom, like Charles Bond, who's displaced from New Orleans, who's, who's mixed blood, who's, who in so many ways is out of place. And Faulkner is writing Absolute Absalom, for example, in 1935-36 in Hollywood, feeling himself like a displaced person. What am I doing here? How am I, you know, how am I surviving in such a culture, such a climate? It's in, you know, the history of the, the 20th century, let alone the 21st century, in many ways is the history of displaced peoples. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is, is to show that Faulkner is a, a kind of futurist. He's showing the way. At the end of Absalom Absalom, Shreve McCann, this Canadian who's absorbed this Southern history, which at the, to the beginning at the beginning seems just sort of crazy, eccentric. And he says, I who regard you now will have descended from the loins of African kings. It's an amazing statement for a character to make in 1936. It's just astounding. But Faulkner knows, and he says this in the 1950s in his nonfiction talks when he's traveling for the State Department as a kind of ambassador. He says to his fellow Southerner, you know, we're dealing with a world of color, and you better get used to it. 
Hmm. The I think it's Cowley who quotes uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, who says to Cowley, "Pour les jeunes en France, Faulkner c'est un dieu. Faulkner's a god. Young people regard Faulkner as a god. Well, that's a remarkable statement." Yeah. That, that's the other thing about it's it's uh, Malcolm Cowley who who helps to make Faulkner, but then it's the French. Not only uh, Sartre but um, Albert Camus. He translates and adapts for the stage Faulkner's novel Requiem for a Nun, uh, and Faulkner's place not so much in England actually, but in France on the continent is is where he's regarded as a, a great writer to such an extent that. In 1950, when when he wins the Nobel Prize, the New York Times runs this editorial completely baffled. <laughs> Why did he give it to Faulkner? They essentially say yeah. they they don't really you know it takes this country really until the 1950s to to come to terms with Faulkner. The book is the life of William Faulkner. This alarming paradox, 1935 to 1962. It is volume two of Carl Rollison's biography of Faulkner. Thank you, Carl, for joining us. Oh, it was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.